I've watched shows for like long for five seasons. What's yeah, the show you've seen. Oh my gosh, uh, I watched The Sopranos. I've never seen The Sopranos. Breaking Bad. Did see Breaking Bad. Better Call Saul. <gasps> did you see Game of Thrones? I did watch Game of Thrones. Yes. Okay. I I someone sent me a thing. Which I don't know why we're going on this tangent. Uh, I have a very huge respect for those who didn't watch Game of Thrones at all. Not even a single episode. Even with all the noise made online and offline. These set of people cannot be affected by social pressure, peer pressure, or any kind of pressure in this world. <laughs> well, oh, that's, that's an interesting post. I mean, one of the reasons I remember watching Game of Thrones is there was something happening... Um, in my life at the time where I needed a diversion. Escape, yeah. Yeah, there there was something. I, it was either that Ron was sick and going through treatment or Sadie was having surgeries. There was something where I needed something that I knew would just, you know, because it's dragons and... Right. <laughs> take you away it was, a, it was your Calgon. It, <laughs> it was a Calgon. Yeah, it was not... This this could really happen. It was I'm just gonna be. Yeah. I need something to just tune out, and that yeah. that was what it was for me at That's that time awesome. in my life. And I don't think I j- jumped on that bandwagon even when it first came out. I think it was three seasons in when I started watching. Like it, it was the same for me with The Sopranos too, though. I think so, The Sopranos was either done or almost done before I started watching. And if I'm being honest, I prefer that so that I can just binge watch if I want to. Because um, like I said, I'm watching The Patient right now and I feel like I'm being held captive because I have to wait. So I think I'm going to give it a few weeks. And uh, yeah, that way I can I, I can watch that. several. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Netflix ruined everything mm-hmm. for us when when uh they just started releasing all the episodes because now that's the expectation and speaking of netflix cobra kai just released their latest season which i haven't seen yet but as we are recording this my family is in the other room watching cobra kai and i just want to point out for the record that i am the big karate kid fan in the house and so I don't even know what's going on. I just feel, I feel like there's betrayal, but not. But I was like, go on, go without me. I'm, I'm doing the whole martyr thing. Yeah. Oh, you go ahead. It's fine. I don't need the last yeah, piece but, of cake. But Belle, you're, you're so busy. If they waited for you, That's, they, they yes. would be working on their PhDs. Yes. Yes. You're right. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. I have never seen Cobra Kai. So, are you a Karate Kid fan? I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I would. Define fan. <laughs> it's not, well for me. 
a, a Karate Kid fan is, is someone who's like me. Like, you know how people say, like, oh, do you have a favorite movie? Oh, yeah. like, Karate Kid is my hands down number one favorite movie of all time. It has been a part of like really significant moments in my it was playing at the birth of both of my children. What? Uh yes, cuz you could have you could have a movie playing in the room when you were and I was like Karate Kid. It's it's been it was when I was working on my thesis like I would always have it in the background every time I've had a major move every time this is weird cuz it's 9/11 right now. Today's 9/11 oh, we're recording yeah. this. So I moved back to New York a week before 9/11. And, um, and they hadn't connected my cable when I had moved in. And so like, and you know, like the, the, the towers had the, the TV antennas and stuff. So I couldn't get any reception. So all I had was my Karate Kid DVD. Um, and I would play that over and over and that would calm me down. It was, it's like, it's, it's my touchstone. The Karate Kid is, means so many different things for me, but it really has been, it sounds so bizarre to say this, but it's like, it really has been this thing thing like it's like my blankie in addition to being a great movie so that's all i have to say about that anyway <laughs> i don't know <laughs> welcome to season five tori welcome yeah i don't know if i have a, a movie like that so that's really cool to hear how it's been so present at pivotal moments for you i mean the birth of your children yeah 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 but anyway Sorry. <laughs> no. Anyway, yeah. Strange. I don't think it's strange. I, I, it just makes me go, why don't I have that? Why don't I have a movie? Maybe you didn't need it. You know, like, you, 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 I don't know. Why do we? Why do we hold on to things? But it, 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 uh, that it's a, it's a huge thing. And my both of me and my sister, um, because it came out when we were really little. You know, mm -hmm. and it was it was like like I said, it's it's always been around. So your like. sister has the same feelings yeah. about it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Did you not have anything playing when when Sadie was born? No, there was no music or anything playing. I don't think there was anything playing. It was pretty. Yeah. Did you have a birth plan? A birth plan. Well. My plans, any plans or ideas, preconceived ideas that I had, all had to, I had to be redirected and refocused because when I went into my eighth month, I ended up hospitalized because I had um, pre-labor, like I, yeah, I was hospitalized for three days and then oh. I, I had to go on bed rest. Oh. So there was no, and my doctor at that time said, you know, cause they, they were thinking maybe we're going to have to deliver the baby right now. She goes, okay, here's the deal. If you go into labor again, you're having this baby, even if it's early, not preterm. So I originally thought I wasn't going to have the epidural and all this stuff and, oh, and I was going to have a natural birth. Yeah, no, none of that happened. And then, it was just so dang painful. I know there are women out there who can do it. Congratulations. I, I <laughs> when, the, when those labor contractions started, I was like, when can I get the epidural? I need the epidural. Were you a screamer? Were you like, ah? No. No? Mm -mm. Okay. 
No, because once I got the epidural, pfft, yeah, it was so easy. Yeah, I was. I. I Why I were was, you a screamer? Hell no, dude. My births were so anticlimactic. I I was watching the Karate Kid. No way. And, and they're the, like, okay, time to push. The nurse who was like, who who came to assist because I don't even think my kid was delivered by a doctor. I don't even remember, but it was like it was a good time. John was cracking jokes, making me laugh. The nurse was there. We were all watching the Karate Kid because she hadn't seen it in a long time. And so, like, you know, you you can't not get caught up in it. It's such a great movie. And I will say this. I had suffered through um, through bad cramps all my life. So when mm. I finally went into labor, it was no match for what I had been dealing with all my life. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, seriously, what I had when I was... 15 years old was way worse than than labor stuff i i was very lucky i had a very like i said it was it was easy it was joyful it was the karate kid yeah and then you take the baby home and it's all hell breaks loose right <laughs> you know i remember that too when it's like, it's like they, they will done? they will you out <laughs> and you put the baby in the thing and it's like that's it now what? <laughs> now what? <laughs> no. Oh yeah. Where? Yeah. Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's when it got really scary. All right. Uh, well, season five. Season five. Well, we are welcoming to the world season five, and um, we have already, full disclosure, recorded many wonderful interviews for this season, which is really exciting. Um, today's interview was recorded while this person had a show going on, but the the show. Uh, recently closed. Um, do you want to tell us who our fabulous guest yes. season five is going to be, Tori? Yes. Roger Q. Mason is an acclaimed Black Philippinex non-binary playwright and performer whose play Lavender Men was premiering at the Skylight Theater. This was back in September in Los Angeles. And their work has been featured on the prestigious Kilroy's list, and they were recently touted by the Brooklyn Rail as becoming one of the most significant playwrights of the decade. We concur. We concur. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's get to it. Without further ado, let us present our interview with Roger Q. Mason. Uh, hey, Dory. <laughs> hey, Mabel. Hey, Roger. Hi, the two of you. You know, I have to say, I have not met yet two folks with the kind of enthusiasm that I'm seeing from the two of you right I mean you all match my energy if not surpass it this is just marvelous oh my gosh thank you for saying that yes. that's I mean I think it just speaks to how excited we are to speak with you because both Tori and I felt so much so we so we weren't able to watch lavender men but we read the script and then we saw the taffeta short yes mm. ah. oh wow ah wow i think uh yes um, i'm still i'm still feeling all the feelings you know yeah. oh wow i just yeah. really when i think of it i i uh, i oh roger you just you got me <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <sighs> Me too. Um, and I was telling Tori this. I don't like to sit in my feelings. I have a problem with that. So I was. I had to find something else to do. I I, I cook dinner, which is something that I don't like to do. But oh I was my just like, God. I have to because I was so. And I just wanted to to hug 
people, things. I just was just like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So we'll talk about that. But let's 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 rewind. Let's, yes. Let's where, talk where about where do you want to start? <laughs> let's let's talk about baby Roger. Let's let's oh talk about the gosh. beginnings. The beginnings. Well, it, you know, this is where I'd like to start. When I was in preschool, I went to the YMCA preschool and they had a mandatory napping policy. They would force the children to take a nap. And I was about four, maybe four or five years old. And I remember confronting the teacher and saying, excuse me, ma'am, my grandmother is paying you to teach, not watch me sleep. What are we doing? (laughs) And do you know they held me back for a year until I would comply? Yes. What? And imagine a child, four years old, five years old, being punished for asking why the status quo is the way that it is. Imagine learning at that tender age that questioning the status quo was a punishable act. And imagine being caught up in a world in which you were instructed to learn that your method of questioning society was going to get you in trouble and in some instances hold you back. That was what I learned. Wow. That was one of my earliest memories of society. Mm-hmm. And society hasn't changed or progressed since then, I'll tell you that. I think it's gotten a lot worse because now people are no longer using pleasantries or passive aggression or double speak to silence that which is uncomfortable for them. We are very emboldened and forward in our aggression now. And so as bold as as my nemeses are, I must also hold my line of boldness. And that is a very tiring social act. Mm. It is a very wearisome way of engaging civically, but it is necessary work. And some people don't have or don't feel like they need to exert that kind of cultural resiliency to take the pummels, the constant banging and clanging of bigotry and of censorship. And it doesn't need to be everyone's job. It shouldn't be. But for those who are able to identify it and dissect it and understand how to destroy it methodically from within, if they have the capacity to do it, then my earnest prayer is that they take the time and energy to do it. You know, we talk a lot about being drum majors for justice. And that is a very lonesome and exhausting road, but I know that it is a necessary one. And I am certainly one of those rabble rousers who has taken to the streets, both literally and figuratively, in order to fight for what is right and what is just in the world. And hatred flourishes in the dark. And I have a flashlight 
that's as bright as a motherfucker. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> I Before we got on, I was describing, I, I believe that I called you a beacon of light. <laughs> Thank you. That's... That, so it's so this conversation feels very full circle at this point. But how do you maintain the energy mm. to do the work? You have to take care of yourself and you have to take moments to not do. You know, we were doing a talk back last night and a question that was posed by an audience member was how do you what, what is the one thing that you learned through the production of this play? And um, I said, I learned to sit the fuck down because there are moments of in time that are extremely exhausting when you're doing this work. And after those moments, you have to take an extended period of time to rest before you come back. And you sometimes have to force yourself. You have to stop and say, I'm going to intentionally not do anything for the next day. I'm going to not think about work. I'm going to not do any work. I'm going to find one thing that brings me joy. And that's what I'm going to do. And the rest of the day, I'm not going to do anything. And I make sure now I've learned to consistently and concertedly take that time because it is absolutely vital to the work. If I don't do it, I'm not doing myself any service. If I don't do it, then I'm not actually investing in my instrument and if I'm not investing in my instrument then I'm of no use to society Oof. I just hear what you're saying about exhaustion though mm -hmm. right about being um the play that you're talking about is it lavender men I, I'm I, I'm talking about all of my work but I'm specifically right now talking about lavender men and it was interesting because Last night, I was in a jury of my peers, so to speak. It was um, the, an evening um, that was a, a group of uh, alumni from my undergraduate alma mater, Princeton University. And I heard myself um, performing the play. I had sort of an inner and outer body experience while I was performing it yesterday. For the first time, maybe, I was able to be in the play and also hearing myself doing the play. And I thought, my goodness, what effort, what rage, what reachings for joy this endeavor is, not only on the page, but also in performance. This is taking everything, you know, and when you get done with this piece and when you finish a run of the show, you know, you finish a performance of it, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. You've given everything to the legendary children. You've given them everything and you've got nothing left. And I don't mind it. I don't mind it. I'm happy to be the vessel for that kind of transformation because the response has been so overwhelmingly grateful. People have been thankful that they came to the theater to get cleaned. Those that saw themselves in the story of Taffeta and her fight for justice and visibility are appreciative of the fact that someone has seen them. And those who are perhaps perpetrators of such bias are grateful to be called out 
and eager to start doing the work necessary to change that aspect of their lives. And those who have been passive and neglectful watchers on of such abuse have said, wait a minute, I now see that I have a role to play. You know, I've always said that the most dangerous man in an act of hate and violence is the one that stands watch while the others perpetrate. Mm -hmm. Because he has a, a choice to make. He has an opportunity in that moment to stand up and speak up and say, wait, no, this is wrong. And what he chooses to do in that moment will define who he is and is evidence of his moral compass. If he chooses to stand up, then perhaps he is a better person. If he doesn't, we don't know. Maybe there are circumstances that prevent that from happening. And I am gendering that in a masculine way because often that's that's often the gender of the perpetrator. Certainly it's what we've seen recently with a lot of the, um, the hate against um, black and trans folks in the last couple of years. It's oftentimes been you know, cisgender men. So I just want to acknowledge that I did use that pronoun and that was intentional. Okay. Mm. I have another question for you. Do it. Let's change And I don't know if you want, and I don't know. No, this is kind of a follow-up because I think, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, like, just, this is, this is me momming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me being a mom. Yeah. What or who takes care of you? <sighs> Myself. Mm. Myself. In the moments that I can. Mm. And that's the truth. That's exhausting, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I sometimes say I'm just a single woman by herself telling the truth. <laughs> And I sort of take uh, I sort of take uh, Nina Simone as a model for that, and also the great mm. comedian Moms Mabley as a model for that. Single women by themselves telling the truth. Can you talk about Taffeta? Yes, um, Taffeta. Oh, <laughs> what can be said about that crazy loon? You know, she saved me. She really did. Um, Taffeta is a combination of many different characters, really. Um, so just in the context of the play, um, Lavender Men, Taffeta is the narrator of the piece. And she sort of conjures her version of the spirits of Abe Lincoln and his legal secretary, Elmer Ellsworth, in order to um, first out them as queer and because of their whiteness, exclusive of her as a black queer person in the contemporary days. So she sort of uses them as the whipping boys of her own loneliness. And then as the play goes on, we find out that there's a lot more in common between Taffeta and Abe specifically, and they form uh, a very unique bond that really doesn't happen until the last two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of the play, you know, because she she can be spiteful, honey, you know, and she will be until the very end. But they form a bond over a lot of different things, including their misuse uh, in the continuum of history. Both Abe and Taffeta find that their 
ignored and, and left lonesome and, 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 and exploited for who they are. And that seeing of each other, that mutual identification is, is what forms a bond between them. You know, I've, I've been thinking even further about Taffeta recently and, um, you know, she's, she's part truth teller and part satirist and part comedian and part tragedian. And I think that um, that mix of all of those different tones and all of the sort of the good stuff of, of, you know, not just American drama, but global drama, those elements that we really love about our stages, you know, around the world. I think we got lucky, the production team and I got very lucky um, to have found a character that's a balance between all of those different beloved elements of global storytelling, you know, being able to mix those different tones and have them seamlessly exist within one figure. That's a blessing, you know, when you're able to get that. And it comes to you. You don't pursue that kind of clarity. Um, and it does take time. You know, that's a character that I've been living with since 2015 in some way, shape or form or another. And um, it, it has um, it has really changed my my perspective on not only acting, but also on writing. And it's made me a much freer and more open and openly expressive uh, artist in many ways. I was just going to ask if the short film came first or if Lavender Men came first. Well, Lavender Men started in 2015 while I was still studying in the MFA program at Northwestern. And at that time, Lavender Men was just Abe and Elmer. So it was literally the two queer boys, you know, having a love affair in Springfield, Illinois. And a lot of those scenes from 2015 have remained largely untouched. And I think for some audiences, because it sort of resembles fourth wall realism the most in the play, that's an element that people latch on to because that becomes a sort of foundational st stable point and gives them a way into all of the other elements of the piece that are being thrown at them, you know, unapologetically throughout the narrative. Um, and so it started off as, as those scenes. And I, at the time, I was fascinated by um, Paula Vogel's Desdemona, a play about a handkerchief, you know, which was about alternative stories within a well-known story and also private versus public. Well, at a certain point, I wanted to acknowledge that it was my perspective as a, a black queer writer that was, you know, imagining this meeting between these two people. So I had a framing device in which Taffeta, this character, came out at the beginning and then had a monologue and then came at the end. And the piece was, the piece was met surprisingly with a lot of consternation and disbelief, not only from, you know, communities that I thought would be behind it, i.e. some of the, the queer playwriting community that I was making the work within at the time. Uh, but also, you know, other, you know, the usual suspects of folks that like to uh, disparage non-traditional narrative. And so I put the play down for many years, uh, many, many years. And that was 2015. And then I had the opportunity to... Um, revive my interest in it in about 2018. 
um, a really wonderful, now he's the artistic director of the, uh, the theater affiliated with the Los Angeles LGBT Center, um, which I believe is called the, uh, the uh, Lily Tomlin Theater mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles, in West Hollywood specifically. And his name is uh, Jonathan Munoz Prue. And Jonathan has long been a champion of diversity in theater, particularly in Los Angeles. And at the time, he was um, working as a producer at a theater called Skylight Theater that had a um, playwriting lab that was developing new work exclusively by Los Angeles playwrights. So this is now 2018. So after, you know, the vetting process, I was admitted into the group. And I was sort of figuring out, well, what project would I want to work on in this group? And I thought that it would be most useful for me to dedicate my time to investigating the role of taffeta in Lavender Men. So I did a little bit more writing on it. And, um, you know, to be very honest, there was still that sense of skepticism from within the group. Traditionalists exist no matter what coast you're on. And so I had to sit down and think, well, what is the issue? Well, the issue was that people just wanted it to be Taffeta's story. Mm. And so I said, okay, well, what is Taffeta's story? And so then I took several years and a pandemic, you know, 2019, 2021, we had a reading of the piece at Circle in the Square on Broadway with um, a producer named Rachel Shuey, who was running a program called Circle Reads or Circle Reading Series over there. Um, and that allowed us to sort of further the cause of Taffeta in the play. And then when the pandemic happened, we were scheduled to do the production at Skylight, which would have been the world premiere in 2020. Oh. And um, of course, the pandemic set that back. So Lovell Holder and I decided that we would make a short film. But the truth is the short film was actually footage for a commercial. I know. I know. So that short film that you saw was actually a promo video for the for the for the play. But we had about 30 minutes of footage and it was so rich that we sort of took the best 10 minutes, re-edited it and then created this short film that has now gone all around the world. I mean, this thing has literally been all over the States. It's been in the UK. It's been in Poland. It's been in Brazil. I believe it's been somewhere in Asia, I forget. Um, it has literally been all over the world, you know, and, and met with, with warm arms and, 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 and happy hearts everywhere it's gone. So what Taffeta, the short film, allowed me to do was really find the heart and soul of that character, Taffeta. And then the knowledge that I gained from that endeavor I then reincorporated into a couple of new rewrites for the play but it wasn't until we got in the room with these boys Pete Plazic and Alex Isola the actors that are in the current production that Taffeta found her spice and her spite (laughs) because when you're in the room with the actors you have to start thinking very practically how do I vocalize and embody all of these ideas about bias and erasure and and queer loneliness and 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 exclusivism and exclusion how do i voice that and so the kind of belligerence and the kind of directness that is now on the page really came within the last month of 
you know, rewrites and production, you know, production and, and um, all of that. So it was, it's been a long journey for that character. The good thing is now I've gotten this formula down to a science. So what took me seven years before can now take me about seven months in other plays. Part of that is you have to go through your own existential evolution. You have to grow to understand that you have the power within you to say such things. Mm. And that takes mm. many years. Once you find that power, hey, playwright, isn't that the name of this podcast? <laughs> once, you find, <laughs> once you find that power, then you can get to it a lot quicker, you know. But it's, but it's, it's the, the journey of finding it that really is, is time consuming. But it's time well spent because you're investing in yourself existential evolution hey i love listen, that existential love evolution that. you said we needed a lesson for the children so i'm here to, i'm starting it right now because this will lead into the <laughs> writing prompt later i was telling tori that i went on uh, down this rabbit hole yesterday after i went through my a good lavenderman taffeta yeah. um trying to Trying to not be in my feelings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and you you're just so brilliant. Oh, thank <laughs> I, you. I, I, you you know this. I hope. Um, but uh, I've heard, <laughs> and I'm grateful for the compliment. When did you realize that you were a storyteller? You know, when did I start doing it versus when did I realize that I was doing it are two different things, and. You know, I'll say that I have been storytelling my entire life. My grandmother was an early childhood educator. She came from Del Valley, Texas, and she went through a, a various um, HBCUs in the 20s during Jim Crow, and then eventually mm -hmm. moved to Los Angeles in the 40s and got her master's and was working on her doctorate in early childhood education. And when I was a child, we used to uh, sit in front of her yellow formica table. And this, this seems very idyllic in Tennessee Williams, but it's actually what happened. I would sit every weekend in front of her yellow formica table, and I would have to recite a new poem from Langston Hughes's collected poetry. And I would get notes from my grandmother and two aunts <laughs> every week. And that taught me, you know, what it means to use language embodied in order to compel an audience. Now, because I started in elocution and recitation work, my first endeavors at storytelling were poetic in nature. So short stories or poetry, little limericks here and there. When did I really realize that I was a storyteller in this contemporary now moment sense of who I am was on a particular weekend in 2019 when we couldn't get anybody to do the role of Molasses Jones, who was a character in my play that's now called The Pride of Lions, which is about um, female impersonators who were imprisoned for doing Mae West's play, The Pleasure Man. And that was a hot year for black writers. And as a result, it was a, it was a, it was a busy time for, for black theater artists in New York. So nobody was available to play this role of this Harlem queen who wouldn't 
sing for no white man unless he paid her. You know, she was very attitudinal. And so the director, whose name was Michael Alvarez, said, well, honey, we've got three weeks till curtain. So go buy some heels and start memorizing your lines because you are Molasses Jones. And, you know, I was just writing the piece and I had not done that, let alone done a drag act or anything like that. And so I bought the heels and I was living at his house, so I had no excuses. Everybody, are the heels on? Yeah. Yes, okay. ma'am. Good morning. You know, and I'd walk out oh, no. the house reciting the lines. And something happened in that process because I recognized something. And this is another hey, playwright moment. I realized the words that I'm writing are a blueprint for an actor to embody with their entire selves. So I really need to write, when I use dialogue, and dialogue is not the only method of storytelling that we have, of course, but when I use dialogue, how do I use dialogue to inspire investigation, rigor, truth in an actor? And how do I make it interesting and exciting along the way? That, that was the great lesson of 2019. And I think I would say that the person that I am today and certainly the person that found Taffeta and is doing this work is a result of that, of that individual. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Y'all didn't know I was going to take y'all to church. You got me over here on Sunday. <laughs> Sunday. Doing this interview, honey. So you already know that first <laughs> church is in session. And that's what we're doing. I got I love my that tambourine, you were, and I'm I ready to you were, sing. You were in the director's house, so you had to do it. I you had to do just it. Well, I don't do that. Man got up before he went to work and said, where the meals? Let's go. I mean, the, what you going to do? What you going to do? That was that. That was it. But it opened this door. It I, sounds like it just opened you up. Oh, yeah. In a way oh, absolutely. that you weren't expecting, right? I was not expecting that kind of evolution that quickly in three weeks. Yeah. I was not expecting for three weeks to change the course of how I develop work. Because, you see, before that, I was very interested in the respectability of being a, quote, man of letters. You know, when we in a merit-based playwriting marketplace, which values what's on the page on a literal two-dimensional level, you start writing to the form in order to please the master. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes gets in the way of your greater truth and your potential. Because you start writing based on what you think will please the reader that's going to decide if you get nominated or placed, you know, first place or runner-up or quarter-finalist, whatever the case may be. And you start... And that becomes your currency, especially early on, because this industry is looking for some ocular proof, as Othello said, show me the ocular proof that you are worth investing in. Mm. And so we bend sometimes, contort, distort ourselves in order to curry favor amongst the decision-making population that we perceive decides our fate. So what happens when you 
kiss caution to the wind and stop writing to the needs and the whims of your perception of the marketplace and find whatever your little corner of this business is without any interest in outward manifestations of success, just doing it for the pure enjoyment of the fact that you are telling the truth. What happens when you do that? It's a risk. It may, it may work and you may become known for something or you may not, but at least you can rest assured that you have told your truth. And that ultimately I think is more important. See, I, now I'm starting to get, you know, people enjoying me and, and, you know, we're getting audience responses that are very positive and the press has been very kind to us. And, you know, I'm, I'm, people are starting to know who I am and what I do. And it's funny because I was sitting there with the, the with the, uh, stage manager last night and she said, well, you had a great show and you've got a whole lot of people outside waiting to see you and, and the press is this. And I said, you know, honey, I got to tell you the truth. The more I do this, the less and less that becomes my priority. My priority is getting up there and doing this thing as clearly and, and, as, and, as, and as full heartedly as I can. My priority is making sure that the castmates that I'm in this piece with feel appreciated and seen. My priority is making sure that we can get moving and using this opportunity as a way of bringing more visibility to the work. Not so that I can get seen, but so that we can have productions that give work to other people. Because this is ultimately a civic work. This is community service. This is not for me. This is not for my ego. I don't need my ego fluffed. I want to create work so that other people have an opportunity. Something happens on that stage in a Roger Q. Mason play. And I'm, there's no ego in this statement. This is only objective truth. I've seen it now for many years. I don't know what it is about my style of writing or the content or what, but something happens on that stage. I can't tell you. People get their souls washed on that stage because I think... I am only able to tell the truth on the page. And people encounter that and it's like they've never had that moment. Or if they have, it's rare. And you see, I can only live in the truth. You know, I have nothing else. I don't lie very well. You can see it right on my face. I'm not capable of of doing that successfully. It's not part of my interest. And so I think when people come to the work and they see that truth on the page, they're so thankful that somebody sees what they have seen down the street, on the subway, in the doctor's office. And because we saw each other, some wall breaks down the wall of lonesomeness. Now, I'm not the only one that has felt that. Now I know the next time that happens to me, somebody has done it and they've survived it. You see, something happens on those stages in these plays. And so my earnest plea to producers 
is don't produce me for the ego of me. Produce me so we can do some work that really changes and heals people. That's why I want to get these plays up. Because I know firsthand that they are social medicine. And I just want to give that to the people because we live in such an ill world right now. And if we can just heal one through these works, then we have done our duty for society. Oh, my God. Ooh, child. <laughs> Ooh, child. I really could just listen to you talk and talk and talk. <laughs> oh, I, I am. I am coming to the church of Roger Q. Mason. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Ooh, you all have been. I mean, this even this conversation has worked me in the most beautiful of ways. So I appreciate it, too. I appreciate it, too. What is what is your joy? Where, where, where do you find joy? In the quiet between mm. the storms. Mm. You know, people, when they flirt or when they used to, they'd say, oh, I like long walks on the beach. And, <laughs> you know, uh, but I really do. I really do. You know, that moment is sacred for me. That, that quiet. There's something truly powerful. You know, I was born by the sea and to the sea I shall return. I'm from Santa Monica, California. I was born there and, you know, was raised between Santa Monica and Koreatown in L.A., you know, and then happened upon a bi-coastal life or tri-coastal, if you count the years in Chicago. And I'm, and I'm grateful for it, you know, because I came from a small, you know, I would call it somewhere between a private and a parochial school because it was a private school, but it was affiliation, affiliated with the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. Very conservative church. It was the Puritans, you know, the pilgrims, honey. So those, mm. those values, the values so stern that even England said, wait, you ain't going to let me divorce this woman. I, you need to get on a boat, honey. You need to get your ass somewhere else. I can't have this. <laughs> they, were so, they were so straight laced, you know. Oh, my God. Even the stuffy English had to send them off on a boat and say, go on somewhere else and find find your bliss because you ain't going to mess with my program. You know, marriage is business over here and you getting in my pocketbook. I need you to stop. You know, <laughs> that's how that was. That's my version of history. Lord help us. But, um, you know, the, the, the point of the matter is that I was, what is the point of the matter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was born by the sea. There's a the point I, that uh, that I have always existed in a space of seeking grounding. And I really do take meditation seriously. And it's hard work sitting still. You can be sitting still while you're walking. Because it's not about physical sitting, it's about spiritual sitting. And I take a long time. You see, even with this play, I meditated on this play for, what, seven years, eight years. You know, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but to they who endureth to the end. Hmm. You know, that's my mantra. And so... That takes grounding. 
and peace. And that's where I find the most joy is in seeking peace. I think that's what it is. You do have a very calming I I don't know. I'm just in, I'm enjoying listening to you, but also I'm feeling I'm feeling inspired by your calls to action. Mm-hmm. The the rage is there, mm. but it is it is very specific mm-hmm. and shaped so that the message is clear when you're reaching out to others, especially through your art. Yeah. You know, you, you can only pick one thing at a time and you've got to, and you have to do one thing at a time and you have to be very, very concerted and deliberate about when and how you do it too. You know, um, I, I've never been one to just bark endlessly. I'm much more interested in specific, clear, and targeted roads to freedom, you know? And I think because I'm a Capricorn, I'm very strategic. So I'm always about how do we create a system by which we can attain this goal? What is the system that we're using to attain this goal? That's my interest, you know? And I think that that does come from that personality type very much. Gosh, and breaking through all of the existing systems, right? Well, well... (laughs) Knowing that they are there to serve certain Mm -hmm. people and that Mm. I am not one of those people. So I just live in another world that interfaces at times with that one, but has its own path and its own way of doing things and its own methods and reasons. And being gracious and being specific and being focused on when and how I engage with those systems and what I need from them, and what happens when I get what I need, and what steps to take when I don't. That's what it is. I I love what you just said about systems. When did you recognize that there are systems in place that are not for you? When because I, was, I think a lot of people get four. stuck on that. When I oh. was four. Preschool. I learned, yeah. I was born into a world that didn't want to hear me. Or value me. I knew from the beginning that I was not going to have an easy time of it. I knew that from Mm -hmm. the very beginning. So once you know that and you recognize that and you nurture yourself in that. You start fortifying your spirit to transcend it. To work with it at times above it sometimes, through it, alongside it. But perception and point of view are two very important tools necessary in order to survive in a biased world. And then you were saying people get stuck on it. They get stuck, I think, because they're trying to still identify it. Really identify it. Once you've identified it, you can start transcending it. Hmm. You know, I've been a a practicing yogi since I was 16 years old. And we talk about mantra of non-attachment. 
Nothing is permanent. Nothing is precious. Everything changes. I think if we all started to understand non-attachment, that's maybe the first step along the way to detaching mm. ourselves from... And because, you see, fighting against a system is still living in it because you still haven't mm -hmm. acknowledged the fact that it exists. Mm -hmm. When you transcend it, you, you're not even living in it. Or if you are, you have that brief encounter with it, you deal with what you need to deal with, and then you move on, and you don't hold it. Practicing detachment. Practicing non-attachment, that's right. Non-attachment. Yes, yes, yes. That's the key. That's the key. I can see how that would be a great way to to preserve yourself, like self-preservation yes. and right? Yes. Oh, there's so much wisdom. Mm. Mm. <laughs> okay, Roger, every Sunday. Okay. <laughs> I'm telling you. I need that. Okay. I need the there, sermon. There's, there's your third. One. Hey, playwright, non-attachment. <laughs> hey, playwright. That's your third non-attachment. Non That's your non-attachment. So I'm going to ask you our asking for a friend question. Okay. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. All right. And this is in the spirit of Lavenderman. Okay. If you had a time machine and could go back in time, what would you change in history? Oh, wow. What would I change in history if I could have a time machine? From the perspective, I'll, I'll answer it. I'll answer it from the perspective of Lavender Men. Because the, the play does that, actually. We, we do... We have a moment where, well, it's sort of now I'm realizing how we laced that theme in. I hadn't, I didn't consciously think about this, but there's a notion in the play for Abe and Elmer that they have the ability to make time stop. And so at the end of the play, before Elmer, who was the first casualty of the Civil War, um, before he marches off to get the Confederate flag from the Hotel Alexandria where he gets shot and then gets killed afterwards, he says, we're going to have this moment and I'm going to imagine a life that could have happened for the two of us. And he recounts this beautiful story of two lovers who have built a home for themselves in the woods in Virginia. And... Um, it's just this moment of domestic bliss before the end where these two people are able to imagine alternative realities and in doing so prove that they are possible even if for a brief moment. And so I guess speaking from Lavender Men, if, if I had a, if, if I could go back in a time machine and change anything, it would be that. It would be to change Elmer's mind that he didn't need to get that flag to prove that he was a great man and that he would have lived. 
And mm. I think the larger sort of issue is that what I'm calling for is a change in our American definition of masculinity and strength and bravado and usefulness to society and self. Because that is, it, that moment, I think, for me, now if I'm thinking about it right now, that moment comes from Elmer's need to be a part of the American pantheon of great men. And he's willing to do anything to, do, to get there, including killing himself, you know. Mm. And uh, that, that's what I would change, I would say. Yeah, you gave me another tear. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> because... Stop it, Roger. Just stop it. Listen, we almost there. We almost at the end of the show, y'all. We're, We're almost there. there. Okay. Writing prompt, Roger. What do you have for us? Writing prompt. For your playwrights, I would say write a scene in which a character reveals either to themselves or another character the thing they have been holding secret their whole lives. And let that be the thing which will set them free. If not oh. in the world, at least in their heart. That's my <gasps> prompt. Hey, playwright. Oh, oh my gosh. I feel like, I feel like not just for characters, but I feel like we could all do that. <laughs> yeah. You know? No kidding. Oh, wow. In life or at the therapist's office. That's what I mean. I mean, yeah. something, anything. Yeah. Release myself. Yeah. Oh my yeah. In my heart. Yes. In your heart. In your heart. In my heart. Oh. Okay, Roger. <coughs> As I'm trying to recover. Um, <sighs> where, wh what do you have coming up? Where can people find you if you want to be found? Okay. I'll do the whole thing. So, okay. Lavender Men is being produced in Los Angeles at Skylight Theater in association with Playwrights Arena. So that's uh, in L.A. If you're in L.A., it runs through September the 4th. My Instagram is at rogerq.mason. That's Instagram. On Facebook, I'm at rogerqmason. And on Twitter, I am at rogerqmason with no, uh, with, with no punctuation at all. And I would be happy to speak with or in any way, you know, give advice or counsel to any writers that may listen to this and are looking for some help. Don't hesitate to contact me. And, and I, I'm excited for the conversation. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for sharing all of you with us today. You've given us so much to think about. As Tori said, if you were to start a legit church, um, we would certainly be disciples. And uh, <laughs> and just we're just so grateful to have spent the morning with you, Roger. Thank you so much. Thank you both very, very much. And it was a tremendous pleasure to be on the show. And hey, playwright. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right, thank you, you Roger. Too. Take care. Bye. Bye, Roger. What a fantastic start to our season. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. So many beautiful things to think about. Yes. 
And there will be information in the show notes on how you can follow up and check out Roger Q. Mason's body of work. Um, I am sure that their plays are going to be coming soon to a place near you. So please do check out their website. And yeah, that was just, that was just a really lovely interview. Yes, absolutely. All right, Tori, what do you have coming up in your life? What's going on in your world? Let's talk about you. I would rather talk about you. <laughs> oh, well, I don't have anything. My, my life now is I'm in school, and that is all I can think about. After we finish recording here, I'm going to do homework, and I have a group project that I have to work on. So I'll be doing that later today, and it's just it's just catching up on stuff, you know? Here we go. The, the hamster wheel is a turning and uh, I'm just trying to stay hydrated. That's, that's oh it. my goodness. Yeah, that'll, that'll be me. In my, in my world, it's about uh, really trying to focus in, work on that artistic statement, mission statement, mm. um, yes. maybe apply for some residencies. I, I would love to do that and just uh get into community with some other playwrights yeah i think that would be i think that would be a lot of fun and so that that's where i'm at yeah you know the work work is starting to pick back up the type of work that that we do i've got um because i work with several different places and so that's starting to pick up for me and just trying to piecemeal put all of the puzzle pieces together for this for this semester semester do you <laughs> do you think semester? of life do you think of life in semesters or no? i think i do part of it is because you know i have a teenager yeah. but the the other reason is for a lot of the work that i do it's right. it's it's either at schools or well actually a lot of my work is in schools right yeah. now and other institutions but i am kind of thinking in terms of a semester rather than a season if that makes sense oh yeah this is this is semester five semester, <laughs> hey, semester right. five. yeah you're right you're right uh-huh yeah yeah cool all right well um if anybody out there is in the olympia washington area i believe tickets are now on sale for the secret garden at olympia family theater penned by yours truly it is a modern adaptation of the beloved classic but i will tell you what tori it is it is the secret garden but not the secret garden you think it is so if anybody is interested in checking that out in the pacific northwest like i i'm gonna be seeing the show it opens september 30th it's gonna be i think it's gonna be bananas i keep seeing little clips of it um, on the Instagram, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. So it's a Latinx version of The Secret Garden. Uh, yeah. It's Highly recommend. I've just seen a, a reading of it, and it was, it was pretty incredible. So, yes, check it out. Check it out, people. Check it out. Olympia Family Theater. We'll put info in the show notes. Yes. And aside from that, we have so many great, great interviews coming up this season so tori did you did you notice something about season five 
I did. Oh my goodness. It it was a throwback. It was a throwback to the edge when we uh-huh. got to meet Freddie Padilla. He was so gracious and recorded our opening. Hey, playwright. Oh. We will put information in the show notes again so that you can check out his theater t-shirts. They are awesome. Yes, they are. And he is awesome. And he is Gina Femia's partner. In case you in case you haven't heard us gush enough about Gina Femia, check out her work as well. And we just love them so much. So anyways, so yes, so special thanks to Freddie. He was saying it all throughout the festival. And then we asked him if we could record it. Once we heard it, we wanted to put it in our intro. And so now it is there. So, so, uh, like, subscribe, follow us on wherever. All the socials. All the socials. Um, and um, and then check out the our, our show notes and all the information appear on our website, heyplaywright.com. And um, yeah, and happy season five, Tori. Happy season five. Bye, Bye playwrights. playwrights.